on September 9th of this year, the largest ever exhibition of Anne Cole Lowe's work opened at the Winterthur Museum, Garden and Library in Wilmington, Delaware, curated by Elizabeth Way. It features 40 iconic gowns designed by Lowe, as well as the work of contemporary designers who have been influenced by her contributions to American fashion. The show remains open until January 7, 2024. For far too long, the life of Anne Cole Lowe has mostly been unknown and much of her work uncredited, but not everyone forgot. Over the next two episodes of Little Red Village, we'll be sharing our conversation with Piper Hughley, who wrote By Her Own Design, which is a fictionalized biography of Lowe that blends Piper's extensive research with the kind of details that just might be unknowable. It's an excellent book, an entertaining read, but most importantly, Piper's novel reveals the inner life of a woman who just dressed generations of Americans, including Jackie Kennedy when she married JFK in 1953, wearing possibly the most photographed wedding dress of all time and the dress that Olivia de Havilland wore while accepting her Oscar for To Each His Own in 1946. Fiction can be a tool to help us understand the past, a way into the narrative that might seem alien to us in 2023. Piper is deft with her use of language, both on the page and while discussing her work. Today, we have more accessible information about Anne Cole Lowe than ever before, a fact that is, in no small part, possible because of Piper's dedication to remembering her story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Little Red Village. I, of course, am Jonathan Joseph, joined here by Rachel Elspeth Gross and our amazing guest for this episode, Piper Hughley, who is the author of a number of fabulous historical fiction books centering the African-American experience. In 2015, she was named as a top historical romance novelist by Publishers Weekly. And today we are here to talk about By Her Own Design, which is a novel of Anne Lowe. Welcome, Piper. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So glad to be here. Jonathan and I both love your book so much. I mean, it's such a beautiful slice of history. And since there really wasn't enough documented about her life, about her experience, it's such a treat to be able to step into her shoes and see the world the way it may have been for her, the things that she went through, triumphs as well as the challenges. What made you pick her as a subject? How did that get decided? Well, I've always been a Kennedy aficionado, so I've always been intrigued by who the Black people were in the Kennedys' lives. But for this particular story, I was on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, Mm -hmm. and my editor tweeted out, as she is known to do from time to time, she retweeted an article about Ann Lowe and said, who will write this novel for me? And I knew in the back of my mind that the designer of Jacqueline Bouvier, when she became Jackie Kennedy, her wedding gown was a black woman. And I knew that it was one of the most photographed, one of the most famous wedding gowns in history. But I did not know the ups and downs and all of the serendipitous intersections of her life. And so when I looked at the article and I looked a little bit further 
online at the material that was available, I was like, oh my gosh, this is definitely a historical fiction story. And I immediately wrote up what became the prologue, which is pretty much what I wrote, what, what ended up being in the book, and sent it to my agent and said, tell Tessa, I'm on this. Do not let anyone else near it. It is mine. And that is how I got the contract to write the book. So you claimed it. You staked your claim. That's yes. <laughs> well, sometimes you have to be assertive. And I know it's we've cut road all... out there in the, in the publishing world. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely yes. is. Mm-hmm. An assertiveness that Ann Colo would have appreciated, I'm sure. Yes, I think so. <laughs> yes, she was not above getting out there, claiming, writing letters to get commissions. She did for both Johnson's girls in terms of their wedding gowns. You might recall that both of Lyndon Johnson's daughters were of an age to marry when he was in the White House. Yeah, she reached out, didn't hear from one, got a letter back from the other. But I mean, in, in the case of those daughters, though, I can't remember if it was Lucy or Linda's. I think it was Lucy who went to Priscilla's of Boston. I, that made her name as a wedding gown designer perpetually. And part of the reason why it did is because she was willing to say, this is a Priscilla's of Boston gown, which is not what happened for Ann Lowe. No, and that's one of, I think, the greatest injustices mm-hmm. with Miss Lowe is that, I mean, especially some of the things that Jackie Kennedy said later, later in her life, it's my understanding she might not have ever credited the design of her wedding gown. I think there's a pretty uncomfortable quote about her saying it was made by a colored woman, which... Well, actually, the actual thing of how that went down, which was part of my research for the book, and because it was during the pandemic, I had to send for the actual issue where the quote came from of Ladies Home Journal in April of 1961. It's not put in there as a line of dialogue coming from Jackie herself. It is put in there as exposition by the woman who wrote it. Yeah, it's hard to know if Jackie said that or if it was the author of the piece who said that. But by not naming her, the damage was done. And I think that's one of the things that Cole suffered with her whole career was getting recognition or having the name renowned, like you're saying with Priscilla of Boston, if people had known Ann Cole Lowe is the place you go for the best dress for your formal event, her life would have been a little simpler. It might've been a little, a little easier. Well, the society women that she designed for us, sorry, Jonathan, I just want to say the society women that she designed for what knew her as the best kept secret. And they seemingly intended to keep her name amongst themselves. Which I, I can imagine for you from a research perspective and, and for other fashion historians that I've spoken to is one of the large challenges with attribution of her garments and things like this because she was kept that secret. Yes, exactly. And I mean, for, for fashion historians and particularly textile scholars like Margaret Powell, to whom I owe a great debt of gratitude in terms of her thesis work on Anne Lowe's work that she had been pulling together had put out there on the internet that she was attempting to pull together to form the exhibit that is happening now in Delaware, just outside of Philadelphia until January 7th. The fact that that she was this best kept secret was part of the mystical allure, I suppose. But she was also a Black woman. And 
guess that in order picking, selecting figures to be treated in this particular way by a historical fiction, this is the wall that you run into a lot of the time. So she, she unfortunately is not uh, unusual in that respect. Actually, the things that exist about her are pretty extraordinary, particularly later on in her life for a Black woman of her time. So. Even her education, right? The story about her education being, first of all, having a, a patron who saw her talent and was willing to support that, not, not keep it a secret, but allow her to mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. to New York and to get the best possible education. And we know that she wasn't allowed to be in the same classroom as the white students, but we mm-hmm. also know that the work she was doing in school was used as an example mm-hmm. for the white students. And that, yeah. I mean, this is 2023 hindsight, but that just doesn't feel good, right? That just feels creepy. That's... Well, the thing I like to point out about her going to design school, like I said, you're the patron, Justine Lee in Tampa, who I, which I consider, or I think she did also consider Tampa as the home of her heart where she was appreciated, validated. One of the things I spoke about in terms of her being as unusual as a Black woman, they did newspaper articles about her there. They were not hiding her name there, like you said, whenever she was named as the Gasparilla Court designer three years running. Her name was out there. People knew where her shop was. All of that thing happened in those years during the 1920s in Tampa for her. But one of the things I like to point out about the S.P. Taylor Design School is that it was in New York, so that it, this was not a Southern place where she was treated so horribly, but in New York City in the late teen, 19 teens, uh, where she had uh, attempted, on the advice of her patron, Josephine Lee, to go to design school. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I think this sheds light on something that's really important from it. Just a historical education perspective that many people don't realize is it's very common, particularly as someone who grew up in New England, for people who are from mm-hmm. the North to, to feel that mm-hmm. there's a certain moral superiority with yeah. we were the free states. And yeah, that's true. However, asterisk slash caveat that doesn't mean <laughs> that Black people were treated very well, necessarily, or mm-hmm. even fairly mm-hmm. in any way, and speaks to the power of historical fiction for highlighting this in such a stark way with a figure like Anne Colo. Yes, exactly. And that's, yeah, that is true. And uh, I said, one, in one of the documents that, while I was writing the book, because of the pandemic, I was not able to get to, but now have seen it. And now it's available on YouTube and on the internet, the Mike Douglas interview with Anne Lowe, where she talks about the school and says in a slightly shady manner, it doesn't exist anymore <laughs> in terms of the school. It's one, it's one of those ongoing mysteries about her that I think future scholars, et cetera, can go about digging out in terms of what exactly happened to that school because my first thought of course would be like that it got folded into something that exists now but maybe it just did close and disappear so it, it'll be interesting for someone to to find out what now happened I'm, to I'm digging I'm itching <laughs> I know this is what I'm saying this way and everybody always asks me the question like why didn't you write a biography well biographies take years and years to do Margaret Powell was trying to do that work. And as I understood it, this 
amazing young woman who died when she was very young, was working on the project right up until the last day of her death. In terms of trying to get that word out there about some of the things, some of the questions of her life, that's going to require someone to have like at least three years of devoted time, not a couple of months writing this book at night while teaching unwilling students world literature during the day. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a story there. (laughs) I'm hearing a professor's part showman part. For sure. For sure. They think I'm they think I'm a nut, so You're a very gifted storyteller, and I think one of the really interesting things about this particular book is, actually leads into my next question here, there's got to be a difference between creating a character from scratch and their whole backstory versus filling in the details or the behind the scenes of a known real historical person was this like uniquely challenging i mean was it a big departure from your from your previous you're intimating it's, it's just two different acts of creation that that happens even when people write historical fiction from someone's perspective that they think that they know like the when i do have the character of jacqueline bouvier come in two-thirds of the way into the novel people think they know her but what I, I find interesting as someone who's a Kennedy aficionado and someone who has looked at her and read practically everything about her is that these early years, right, before she became the global fashion icon, who was she as this relatively young woman engaged to someone who was incredibly reluctant, who had to be really shoehorned and forced into the marriage by his daddy? Because he was worried that people would think that he was gay if he didn't marry someone. And so here's this wonderful, marvelous girl you've been seeing put a ring on it, as Miss Beyonce would say. And he he didn't want to be married, though. And we now that we know all the activity, I mean, apparently, if he didn't have sex every day, he would get a headache. This is, was what was said. I mean, he was known for his medical <laughs> Right. That's what they say in Kennedy biographers. That yeah. So all of those feelings around everybody looks at like, oh, what an extraordinarily happy circumstance situation slash everything, but that had to suck. (laughs) It's not your typical fairy tale. It's not Not Cinderella. It's not right. And not at all. And but everybody has this whole thing, oh Camelot. Let's think about that a little bit more deeply. And the whole aspect also, of course, of her father being the same renowned philanderer that he was. I mean, the people who are are Kennedy fans know that well-known picture of him holding hands with another woman with Jack, with Janet, his wife in the same picture, but not able to see. <laughs> Incredible. So all of this had to have affected her characters. Jackie, so for me, it was a challenge to say, to develop Jackie's character in this way. Why is she, why is she silent about having Anlo's name in her mouth, particularly someone who had been working as a bespoke designer with them 
for many years. But right, because her mother and her sister both had exactly. commissioned by law. I think the sister chose somebody else for her wedding. But yes. even so, I believe the mom was the, the one. Deb who dresses. Was... But Gabby's yeah. Deb dress, where she was Deb of the Year in 1947, was an Anlo creation. Lee's Deb of the Year dress and Jackie's dress and Lee's dresses when they went to the Deb balls for her sister. All of the, and, and of course, initially, the wedding outfit of her mother for her second wedding when she got landed that big, rich fish, beauty Auchincloss. Yeah, so all of those provided, I think, some opportunities, like you're saying, Rachel, in terms of thinking about, is it more difficult or is it just a different work to make those connections? And to make really Jacqueline Bouvier at this point human as opposed to icon, I think. Probably more fair for anybody to see them as human than as an icon, regardless of your political persuasion, your personal beliefs, whatever. I think, I mean, humans fail, humans make mistakes, mm-hmm. humans grow, humans become better. And I do think you're right. And there's a lot of circumstances that I, as a woman in 2023, don't have to consider or think about or deal with. Or, yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, the whole aspect of it is one of my book clubs and this is one of the things that's been wonderful about the release of the book, this book club that was like 75 miles from Omaha and 100 miles from Lincoln, somewhere in the middle of the country, say, that because they saw the book in Costco, they got into it and we were, able, were able to read it. Holding up her high school report of Jackie Kennedy to the camera saying, you've destroyed my illusion about Jackie Kennedy, to which I can only respond, but you do admit that they were illusions. So there you go. <laughs> it's better for us to understand, to feel, I mean, to have real information, that it be complete. I mean, you can still admire someone, admit that they have, mm-hmm. you know, people can do good things and bad things. Yes. Nobody is one thing. And she was young at some point. She was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And in her own way, had a certain lack of agency because of her social standing and the social pressures of the time and not to excuse it. But I think in 2023... We live in the era of cancel culture, and it's sometimes too easy to project that ethos into the past, which I think also mm-hmm. is a, a, one of the prime functions of historical fiction is to shake us out of that and remind us that there is this temporal difference that's important to take yeah. into account and important to influence how we view our idols and our adversaries, if you will. Yes, yes, that's true. That historical fiction can play a role in that, absolutely. So when you're writing a book that is about a real person and there isn't any documentation, let's say there is no record, there is no, like, we know the end result, we've seen the dress, but we don't know what happened. How do you, how do you go about filling in those gaps? That seems like a huge challenge to a writer. <laughs> what, what part of that is the art of, of imagination? that does come into play. One of the wonderful, almost requirement now, I think, of historical fiction that exists is the thing called the author's note. And so a lot of people who know the genre and sometimes will even go back to the author's note and read that first before they read the book are the places where yeah, are I you, do Jonathan? I do oh, I always you, read the you author's naughty, you naughty boy <laughs> I admit it I admit it I have to I, I'm I'm exposing myself here but I do I do do that 
I'll do it with a footnote. If a footnote, I need to know the details. <laughs> oh, I love a good but footnote. Footnotes are my favorite thing. I love a good They're footnote. Awesome. They are awesome. The whole waiting to happen. <laughs> but the purpose of the author's note in historical fiction is so that we can explain where we created fiction, where we made up, what things were factual, what things were true, as well as provide what historical fiction fans love the most is more places to read and look and see. So all of that is what the the author's note is about. And maybe Jonathan can read it first because if there is like a little list of books in the back, you might want to get yourself ready to go ahead and get them. You just clocked me so hard. That's exactly, oh, so true. (laughs) That's entirely understandable in that case where you want to get that, those books going by the time you're finished with the novel. But yeah, a, a very important part of the creation of such work is to be able to say those things. So certain things with Anne Lowe, like I said, because she was a Black woman born in Jim Crow, Alabama, where we know that due to racism, we don't have records like of her birth certificates. That thing, the thing that I already knew going into writing the book that wouldn't exist because she grew up two counties over from my paternal uh, side, my, one of my great-grandmothers. Hmm. Yes. So I knew, having done the family research and for over years, that that evidence wouldn't exist. But Anne Lowe's birth certificate is a particular, would have been a, be a particularly important thing to discover because the fact that she entered into marriage as a child with yes. a particularly nefarious individual in order to what what people would often require some hardcore piece of evidence to say oh well did she really marry someone at 12 which is what is said happened well again more the more book clubs that I've been talking about visiting there's always one or two people who say my grandmother was 13 or my grandmother was 14 or whatever in the south we know this is a particular phenomenon that happened. But because it's my job as a historical fiction person to try to come up with motivations for why characters do things, but my particular motivation was she wanted to grow up faster so she could she could actually work on the dresses that her mother and her grandmother were doing as well-known dressmakers in Atlanta, I mean in Alabama at that particular point in time. So, yeah. And it I would love for that not to have been true in terms of that, but family lore, come to find out later, also confirmed that circumstance and situation. It's horrible. Anytime a child, right. any, any child, any right. gender, anybody forced into marriage or mm-hmm. believing that the best thing that they can do for themselves or the best way forward, the best way out mm-hmm. be through right. marriage. I mean, that's a choice that, Dear Lord, I hope none of us or our families ever have to encounter. But well, and this is the thing about it is that Tennessee just last year tried to pull shenanigans where they had tried to pass a measure about marriage and there was no age put into the measure. And people had to go back and say, don't you mean to put in there minimally 18 and then to put that in there? So, yeah, this is an important thing. I mean, we are. That's the thing. I think it's very easy, especially in America, to think that these things are so far removed from us Mm -hmm. when I 
I was adopted from Colombia. And my Colombian friends tell me all the time, like, oh, what did you get for your 16th birthday? Some augmentation and other things, because for a lot of Colombian women, the way out of of poverty is make yourself look very attractive by conventional Western body standards and find a wealthy husband. And that's true of a lot of different cultures now. And so, again... To my point earlier about the importance of historical fiction raising issues in a different context that are still salient today, I think the way you chose to navigate Anne Cole Lowe's story, particularly this chap, this portion of it where she's being pushed into this marriage, where she's stuck in this marriage, but at the same time has the women in her family finding ways to circumvent that reality by inspiring yeah. her and, and and always being in her ear saying like keep making your things keep making your things mm-hmm. for those of you who are listening Anne was being forced by the husband to work for his tailor shop to make his crappy suits when she would i mean they weren't crappy when she made them but that's not the point but, she yeah. she her yeah. mother and her grandmother her wanted her <laughs> exactly exactly and it was through her mother and grandmother as you so deftly wrote that she was able to keep up her skills and keep making her things that were important to her that were keeping her at the the height of her craft and that was yeah. a, a life raft really for her mm-hmm. within yeah. the confines of this marriage mm-hmm. so when the time came to escape she was ready so Right. And I think, I mean, we were talking about Josephine Lee earlier, and I think that she had advocates, people in her life, I mean, who can't stay with your husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're up in New York studying. I know there were challenges with child rearing, and I know that it must have been, as a single mother myself, I can tell you, I know it's difficult to work and have a kid and make everything your priority all the time. But well, that's think- the interesting thing about when she was in New York. I wrote it that she left Arthur behind for that time period, but apparently he he had come with her. Yeah, I've read conflicting. I've read both. I mean, mm-hmm. I've read, and I mean, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was my creation. <laughs> I created the mother-in-law who knew her son was terrible to be willing to keep Arthur. But yeah, family lore and et cetera. So Margaret Powell's interviews with Audrey and Lowe's granddaughter say that, yeah, he, he went with her. Like you're saying, as a single mother in New York City with the baby, how does she do it? It like it just even raises up the, the respect for her. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> she must yeah. never have slept. I can only imagine. <laughs> just, yeah. How does that touch? Well, it boggles the mind. It really does. Oh, it really does. So what do you think the biggest challenge was for you writing this book? Hmm. No, in terms of the biggest challenge, I didn't feel like any much of it was. I don't know. I, there's like no, that's crazy fine. little, that's... yeah, these crazy little things in terms of the overlap with coming from my paternal side of the family, coming from so close to where she was from the fact that I'm a Zora Neale Hurston scholar and Zora Neale Hurston was born not far from where she lived uh, when she was born. All of that was like, was really, I guess, like serendipitous happenings in terms of that. I, I, if any, I think the challenge has been honestly in the aftermath, which really has been more about look at this woman and appreciate, lift up 
celebrate, admire what she did. And to some extent that is happening. And I think in particular, because of the exhibit finally coming to fruition, Margaret Powell's dream coming to fruition finally is happening. But I, I still feel like there could be more. I still feel like the, the war of appreciation. We'll see coming around here in February and March if we get a little bit more. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I think if that show hadn't happened, the Vanity Fair article wouldn't have come out. There wouldn't have been as much coverage. I think there's a Town and Country article as well. And I mean, these bigger named publications that really do have a readership and established, like, I want to see more stories like this. I mean, right, more, stories, right. more stories like this. And, right. I mean, I guess I'm thrilled that there are people in museums who are making shows that garner this press. But I don't want to have to wait. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just hopeful. Like a lot of people are talking about, okay, well, what's going to happen after the exhibit is over? What part of the exhibit was the, which I thought was really cool, the recreation of the wedding gown, which is no longer on display at the JFK Library because 50 yards of ivory taffeta hanging on a figure over time will pull the stitches apart <laughs> because gravity. So then it was like a couple of years ago, of course, way before the exhibit, before this Anlo entered the zeitgeist, so to speak, there was an artist who created a paper version of it. And that's what's showing now. But they're going to take this recreation that a professor at the University of Delaware did with the help of some students. And she had a, uh, a number of young Black women helping her as well to get an appreciation, to recreate the dress. She, she herself, the professor, flew to Boston and photographed, and they allowed her to examine the original gown, et cetera, to get together what had to be done to do it. But the fact that young women of today were forced to, or not forced to, but as part of their work, appreciate the level of detail and skill that went into a dress that had to be made not just once, but twice due to the first one being destroyed. And on uh, a super truncated timetable. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, wedding in All the students were like, yes, we bow down to you in love hmm. because. It's not a simple thing. I mean, it's deceptively simple. It looks simple. It looks elegant, but there's a lot of work. There's a yeah, lot of work. Yeah, a lot of hard work. Only. So, so that's going to go back to the library, but all of these other gowns, where are they going to go? I'm hopeful that these other museums and entities will display them and bring them forward more often than where the, what had been previously the case. In terms of, I know that at least in the, the Plant Museum down in Tampa, they do show, because they have the oldest examples of Ann Lowe's work from the Gasparilla years, right, that they do display every year when Gasparilla comes around, they alternate that. But some of these other ones should bring them out. Well, there's so many stories associated with the clothing that she designed. I mean, the Olivia de Havilland Academy Award dress. I mean, how many Southern First Ladies inauguration dresses or their daughter's wedding dresses or their Debbie Town? Like, it's not like she's only Jackie. Yes, There's exactly. So much. Exactly. Could so much. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe it'll even get people to look in their attics and all this other stuff where to find more examples that are probably out there that could be noted and appreciated for their craft as well. So that's, that's my hope, at least.
that was an amazing part one for Piper Hughley's interview at Little Red Village. And as always, it is time for footnotes. Our first footnote, of course, is the iconic Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Onassis. Jackie O. Famous for being JFK's widow, socialite Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy was a style icon. Her widely publicized restoration of the White House and focus on arts and culture, coupled with her keen personal style that defined the Camelot image of the Kennedy years, cemented her place in fashion's pantheon and as one of America's most recognizable first ladies. She was, at the time, the youngest first lady ever at just 31 years old when JFK took office. Two, a little bit of a biography on Anne Colo, the subject of Piper's book. Born in 1868, this woman at the center of Piper's book hailed from Alabama where she learned sewing from her mother and grandmother. By the 20s, her innate talents were honed further by schooling at the segregated S.T. Taylor Design School in Manhattan where her patroness from Florida sent her. She was known as the best-kept secret of high-society women like Jacqueline Bouvier, who would later become JFK's wife, and for whom she made the iconic wedding dress. Did you know she received no credit for that dress until after JFK's assassination and that just before this high-profile wedding, 10 days, her shop flooded and she had to rush to remake the gown and bridesmaids' dresses at her own expense and never even told Jacqueline Kennedy this happened. This trend sadly continued throughout her life, where she often struggled to turn a profit as her wealthy clients talked her out of fair pricing. And our last footnote, debutantes. As a member of high society, young Jackie O followed in the footsteps of all young ladies of a certain time and station, debutante cotillions. These balls where socially girls became women and were presented to so-called polite society to be of eligible marrying age. They originated with European aristocracy hundreds of years ago, but of course, the nouveau riche of America took the custom stateside, and Colot was tasked with creating the all-white gown for Jackie and her sister Caroline, setting the stage for their lifelong collaboration. As always, thank you for joining us for another episode of Little Red Village. I hope you learned a little something, and remember, fashion is for everyone.